Good morning, Spring Valley. How are you? Happy Father's Day. At this time, let's have all the fathers stand. So everyone that's a father, grandfather, stand up. Okay, now we want the ladies to clap for you. Okay, you may be seated. Ladies, if you'd clap for them more, you'd have better husbands and fathers. Uh, we, we, we like to be cheered on, uh, so we, we, we need to do that. I told someone after the first service, I said, a, a young Robert Winburn and young committee designed this up here. No one with bifocals would have ever put this many steps c- coming up, so... Uh, that, that, that's one of those things. Spring Valley, the first time I ever remember hearing of Spring Valley, I was a pastor of First Baptist Church in Williamston. Dr. B.F. Hawkins was my director of missions, and his daughter, I think B.J. Willoughby, uh, is, was uh, on the committee looking for a pastor, and he asked our church if we would pray for Spring Valley, and that's the first time I remember hearing of Spring Valley, and we prayed through that, and God must answer the prayer. He's still here, so that, uh, that's about close to 30 years, so that, that is really good. Uh, but appreciate, Robert, letting me be here today and sharing with you on Father's Day. You know, it, it's a great time to think about what we do as fathers and how important it is, but it also is a good time for parents and grandparents and great-grandparents to think about how, how tremendous our responsibility is to, upon the next generations. So I want to preach today on building uh, multiple generation spiritual DNA. Now, you know, it's only been in the last several years, unless you're in the medical or scientific world, that you've heard of DNA. I had to look it up and write it down, and it means D. Now, I'm, I, I'm, I speak Southernese, as my grandsons say, so uh, deoxyribonucleic acid is what that stands for, which means nothing to me until I understand it's a genetic blueprint. And basically, what that means is much of what my daddy was, I'm going to become. I hope a whole lot of what my mother was, I'm going to become. And I'll give you a personal testimony of my family in just a little bit. But, you know, when we think about our children are going to become like us, our grandchildren are going to become like us and like their parents, our children. So we have to stop and think, and this is the question for you today, is do you want your children or your grandchildren to become just what you are today? Well, and, and most of us have to say that, but for us to stop and look at where we are right now and think, they are going to become like us. When I, when I do premarital counseling, I'll always ask the guy, you know, I, and he thinks I'm joking with him. I say, well, uh, how do you like her mother? And he said, oh, she's real nice. I said, how would you like to be married to her? He said, oh, no. And I said, well, you are marrying her. I mean, in, in a sense, you are getting a version of her mother. So we, we need to look at what we're doing. We're shaping lives. This thing of parenting is serious business. 
And I hope we can take this part of the Word of God and look at it and really see something that will be so impressionable on us. And we'll look at that today. So let's pray together, and we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here today, for just the opportunity to open your word, allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. And Lord, my prayer is that you would speak to each one of us in the place of our need. I know that everybody here has something different that they really have on their mind that they would really love to have from you today. So I pray that you and your diversity would be able to do that. And each of us could leave saying it really has been good to be there today. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And may these in some way, something that said become the word of God to meet that need in the lives of everyone here. And we'll thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Let me start with a story to kind of set the tone. There was a sociologist who was studying the culture in a town. And so he began with interviewing some of the people from that town. He started with the mayor and he went to the mayor and he said, I understand from the people of the town that you are a teetotaler. Uh, why would you tell, why, why, why would you tell me why you're a teetotaler, why you don't drink? And he said, well, my father was an alcoholic and his father was an alcoholic and his brothers were an alcoholic. And I just knew that if I drank, I would become an alcoholic. And so he, he went and he interviewed some more people, asked them basically the same questions. And finally he got around to uh, interviewing the town drunk. And he asked the town drunk, said, would you tell me why you are an alcoholic? And he said, well, I'm an alcoholic. I really didn't have any control over it. My father was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Their brothers were alcoholics. And so I'm an alcoholic. I, I didn't have a choice. And then what he found out was the town drunk and the mayor were brothers. Yeah, so you have to stop and let that kind of sink in. Much of what goes on in our lives that we blame on other people when reality is it's decisions we make. It's choices we make. So I hope throughout this today that God will really reveal to you something in your character that you need to do just a little better for him. And if you can do that, then what a great opportunity it's going to be for generations to come. I think one of the greatest mistakes of our culture today is this. You hear it said from different people at different times, well, I'm just hurting myself. No, you can't do anything that just hurts yourself. You always have some effect on others. So if we could just agree that we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit at what we might change to make the lives of others better, then I believe he will speak to us. So let's look at the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 1 beginning with verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. You remember Paul's writing this from prison. He's praying for young Timothy. 
He has plenty of time to pray for young Timothy, and he wants him to know, I'm praying for you. I keep you on my mind. I am sincere in what I'm doing, and with a clear conscience, I am praying for you. And then he goes on to say, recalling your tears. He remembers the time when they parted ways. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, I want to stop right there for just a moment. This takes a little explanation, but I want you to understand what's going on here. You notice there is no male figure mentioned. Grandmother, mother, and now evident in you. We, we know pretty much from what we can find out that his parents were, uh, his father uh, was not a believer, therefore poured very little into his life. So women understand, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers understand if there are no men involved in the spiritual building of your children and your grandchildren, you, you have, you have, your responsibility doubles there. You really have to live it before them. Help them understand what it is to live for our Lord. So that, that just kind of compounds. But the beautiful thing is when both accept the responsibility and you have husband and wife, mother and father who are pouring into their children together and they're doing that for generations. See, what we see here is Paul is saying what you do now is important and for generations to come, it's going to be seen. It's going to, it'll be revealed. And I'm going to show you from another scripture in just a moment about that. But what you need to understand, what is it that he's passing on? I, I love word studies and this word sincere really catches my eye because I'm a woodworker. Paul employed a word that was a furniture making word. And the word is sincere. And that word means literally without wax. And so when the, the craftsman would build the, the furniture, he may get it almost finished and have what we all as woodworkers hate. You get something almost finished and a blemish appears. A knot pops out or a deep scratch in the wood that you have to cover up some way. And what the furniture makers of the day would do is they would fill it with wax and they would burnish it down and then they would put finish over it and you would think when you bought this piece of furniture that it was a sincere piece of furniture, meaning without blemish, okay, and without wax. So then you'd get it home, no air conditioning, the heat of the summer, and then the wax began to melt and you would realize this is not a sincere piece of furniture. It was not without wax. Well, Paul employs that word for us to understand sincere faith. Today is your faith without wax. Is there flaw? Are there flaws? Are there blemishes in your faith? See, when we live before our children, the one thing that every child will tell you they want from you, they want to know you're genuine. They want to know when you tell them this is why you do this. They want to know you are doing this. 
They want to know when you tell them why they cannot do something, they want to know that you are not doing that. They want to know with their hearts that you are sincere in your faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. So I'm, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, first in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and now I'm persuaded that it lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Make it blow. That spark that's there, just flame, you know, fan it into flame so everyone will see that. And you got that from me through the laying on of my hands. See, Paul transferred that fatherly image that he did not have from his father. When he laid on hands, he passed to him the gift and the blessing of spirituality. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Holy life. Fathers, if you can give your children anything else but a holy life, you've given them wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Holy means separated, set apart, living just... Holy in the sense that we are like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So live that holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our, our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that was in every song that was sung this morning. How, how beautiful it was. And then the video as it was. And then the Sunday school lesson this morning. My goodness, when we talk about nothing being impossible with God and we're struggling with raising children and praying for our grandchildren and how God just knits everything together for the message. And by the way, if you weren't in Sunday school this morning, shame on you. You should have been there. Uh, you need to study God's word in every setting that you can, and you learn so much there because, again, God always knits it together to make the day an understanding of his word from several different areas of the Bible, and then you know that he's speaking to you in that way. So picking back up in verse 11, and this and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald because he's a messenger from God and an apostle because he saw Jesus on Damascus Road and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed. And you would recognize this from the King James because we sang it as hymns, those of us who are older all of our lives. I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him on that day. So that we, we have to be faithful to that which we have. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching, which with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now, look very carefully at verse 14. That sums up everything that he's saying here. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what is that good deposit? That good deposit, and in my Bible, I've got a line drawn all the way back up to verse 5. The good deposit is that sincere faith. See, we, we put that sincere faith into our children, into our grandchildren, into the lives around us. When we talk about discipleship, it simply is pouring our lives into others, helping them to grow in Christ and be servants of Christ. Guard the good deposit. There is something always and forever trying to take the good deposit away from you. It's just like your creditors and those that you owe and your, all the other bills that you pay, they're trying to take everything out of, out, of your, out of the bank that you have deposited there. Satan is always trying to take away the good deposit, and Paul is very careful to say, you guard that. Don't let anyone touch the good deposit that you have, that is, the sincere faith. Now, the word there is parakethese. And again, I love word studies, and I know you don't care about that long word. But what interests me when I see those words is the first four letters is para. Now, you remember the word paraclete? Jesus is our paraclete. It means when we stand in judgment, he is going to come alongside parallel to us and he is going to stand before the father and he's going to say this one father is mine bought with my blood this one is mine bought with my blood so the coming alongside of and you know paramedic pair of shoot all of those things that that we use p-a-r-a so here's the word good deposit p-a-r-a so what is the good deposit it's that good deposit that he put in us at salvation He saved us from our sin. We have eternal life forever. We try to live for him. And now he's in this, he's saying, guard that good deposit that was entrusted in you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So your children, your grandchildren, those who are coming that you may never live to see. So they will know what it is that is important to you. The good deposit of God, the Holy Spirit through his son, our savior, that he deposits into your life. Now, how does all that play out in in our lives? I think it would be helpful for us to think. Now, this is an assignment. I I don't have time to go over this. Uh, I don't usually preach much over an hour, but uh, I don't don't have time to go through all of the Old Testament. But your assignment is start over at David's life and when he dies. And go forward through Kings and those chapters that tell about him and see how many times it says, and God did this for the sake of his servant David. It started with Solomon. Solomon doing something with the temple and a crisis came and it said, because of my servant David, for the sake of my servant David, I'm going to do this. So after David's dead, God is honoring his walk. Not just there, keep following it all the way through. And I don't have time to go through all of that. But you get over to the part where uh, in 2 Kings chapter 19 and 20, Hezekiah is about to go into battle. And no one has beaten the Amalekites. I mean, they're tough. And God says... Well, I'm going to defend the city, verse 34 of chapter 19, 2 Kings says, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my 
servant. 305 years after David died, God says, I'm going to do it because of David. If you go on and read the next chapter, uh, he, he gets sick, he prays, you know the story. God adds 15 years to his life. He's about to die. God says, I'll give you 15 more years for the sake of my servant David. And I think that's the last time that it's mentioned in that way. But listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. David must have stored up a lot of prayers, a lot in the spiritual bank throughout those years. Because 305 years after he died, God is blessing because of David. Just somehow get your mind around this. Is it not great that you can put into the spiritual bank prayers right now for grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren that you may never see and you can already pray for them and God will honor your prayers even then? I don't know about you, that just blows me away. That's one of the most wonderful things that I can pray for is to know that as I pray for my sons, as I pray for their wives, as I pray for my four grandchildren, that even before the others are born, and I may never live to see them, I can pray for them, for their spouses, for the lives they're going to live, for the call of God that he will put upon their lives and the way he is going to work through. And... I didn't just come up on, with that all by myself. That came, and I told the next step is my personal testimony. And, you know, it, I grew up in a great Christian home. I mean, it was one of the best Christian homes anyone could ever hope for. I had a dad that uh, lived uh, just a, a wonderful life as an example and discipled me. I learned to lead people to Jesus standing on the front doorsteps of homes in Utica Mill Village in Seneca listening to my daddy take him down Roman Road. And I learned to witness in that way. I mean, my daddy discipled me, taught me how to live, taught me how to love, taught me how to witness, and so forth. But my mother was better than my daddy. Uh, my sisters say that I have three sisters, and they've always said if, if God hadn't used uh, Mary to bring Jesus into the world, he would have chose mother to bring him into the world. Uh, that, that's a good thing to say about your mother, but I did. I had, I think not because she's my mother, but probably one of the most godly women that I've ever known. So I, I'm, I'm truly blessed, but I can remember an, as a nine year old boy, when I learned a valuable lesson about parenting, but I was only nine. We stood on the front porch of a little house in Seneca. My daddy was a, a cotton mill worker. He was loom, overhauler in, in the cotton mill. And a man came and said, Code, that's what he called my dad. Cody was my daddy's name. He said, Code, I, I want to offer you a job. He said, you can make three times what you make in that stinking cotton mill, and you can give your five children anything that they want. And I remember my daddy's response. As a nine-year-old boy, I'm standing right beside him. And my daddy says, well, Harold, I tell you, he said, yes, I could probably make more money. And I could give my children anything they want. But what they need is a father who's here for them every day, who raises them in the word of God, and who is willing to show them how to live. Folks, you can't do anything for your children better than that. So I learned as a nine-year-old boy to follow him in that way. One other story, let me tell you this. When the Lord called us into ministry, Gail and I, 
1976. I was 26 years old, and uh, the you know, so I was already established in business. We'd built a home, and I mean, we, we had everything going our way. And then the Lord messed all that up and called me into ministry. But uh, we we felt we ought to tell our parents, my parents first. So we live right, we built the house right next to them. So we went up on that Sunday night, and before we were going to tell the church the next Sunday morning, and uh, we told them, and they just started crying, and. Uh, my mother looked at my daddy, daddy looked at mother, and finally mother, it, when she got her you know, composure, she said, we didn't know which of the five it would be, but said, ever since you were born, we've prayed that God would call one of you into full-time service. I'd never heard that in my life. I'd never heard them talk about ministry except in prayers at church. I came out of Utica Baptist Church in Seneca, and when I, the next Sunday morning when I announced that I would be in ministry, God was calling us into ministry. A lady came up with her Bible, and she flipped to the back, and she wrote, said, said I'm going to write your name right here. said, you're number 37 called into ministry. And there's probably been another 25 or 30 since then. But the secret to that is the spiritual DNA of a church. Every Wednesday night of my growing up years, while I was in church on Wednesday night, I heard almost everyone that prayed, prayed for the next one who would be called. See, that's the type of spiritual DNA that we need and we must have. So that last thing is, look at those four things on your listening sheet. You have to make a decision now. I mean, what is it? It may be that you're here and much like my dad, when my dad, I didn't tell you that story. My, my dad's dad was an alcoholic. And uh, he was a bootlegger. Uh, his brothers were bootleggers, much like the story. But uh, my dad, uh, young people, y'all need to listen to this. My dad married a Christian woman. If you don't want to change your lifestyle, don't marry a Christian. But uh, my dad married a fine Christian woman. She prayed him into, into the kingdom. I mean, really, and the Lord gloriously saved him. And he did what the first one here is. I mean, he turned the ship around. I mean, generations of alcoholism and, and sinful living, my dad said no more. He put a stake in the ground, turned it around. And since then, you know, we, we have, uh, we have <laughs> just a, a great family. My oldest sister's been married 49 years. My next sister, 48. Uh, we celebrated our 45th yesterday. Uh, my brother will celebrate his 44th in August, and my other sister celebrates her 43rd, celebrated it two weeks ago, on June 8th. Uh, folks, that's parents who pray for their children, who teach them the ways to, to live. And uh, so... I wouldn't be here today, I'm pretty, pretty convinced, were it not for my dad turning it around. So I say to you this morning, whatever your situation is, it may be that you realize I need to turn this around today. You can make that commitment to the Lord. Second thing is, get back on course. It may be that you were so in line with the Lord, his will for your life, and somewhere you got off course. And this morning you've realized that, and you just want to say, Lord, put me back on the right track, and I will try to stay the course for the rest of my life.
And then some of you are sitting here saying, you know, this is so refreshing because I know that and I'm doing that and God is honoring that and I am so grateful. So I just say to you, continue the good work. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's my last verse, First Philippians 1, 6. And then for all of us, make the good deposit. Store up blessings for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Just think that what you do today is going to make a difference in lives tomorrow. We need to really take that seriously. I hope you will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you in in the precious name of Jesus for uh, the word of God that speaks to our hearts. It's so, so refreshing to be able to take a passage of scripture like this and be challenged in a way that we have to change our life or be challenged to continue what we're doing and to, to realize the importance of it. So my prayer is in this time of commitment that you would help each of us to make the decision that you, through your Holy Spirit, have spoken to our heart and the way you've spoken to us and the thing that we need to do. So as you've spoken to us, let us respond in Jesus' name. Amen.